This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, let me thank all of you for coming today. Um, it's always nice to see some familiar faces in the crowd. And thank you to Dr. Wall for inviting me to give this presentation. Hopefully you'll find it a worthwhile contribution to this series. So almost a century ago, G.K. Chesterton stated that Thomas More was more important at this moment than any moment since his death, even perhaps the great moment of his dying. But he's not quite so important as he will be in about 100 years' time. Nearly 100 years have passed, was Chesterton correct, at a time when the conduct of religious believers, whether clerical or lay, institutional or individual, is increasingly viewed with skepticism, is there room for Thomas More's example? In a legal system that at times appears confused about the place of religious freedom with and amongst other civil rights, can Thomas More's life and adherence to a higher calling provide a refreshing take? This talk is the outgrowth of a year of study of Thomas More while I was a student actually at Notre Dame Law School and during my first year of practice as a legal aid attorney. Confronted with the challenge of writing a daunting 50-plus page paper for my law school jurisprudence course, where most students choose a Supreme Court justice to analyze, naturally I chose the oldest subject with the shortest career as a judge and the fewest opinions, if any, on record. Uh, but my goal was simple, comprehending Thomas More's philosophy of law, both the theory and its practice in his life and how it compares to the basic values underlying our American legal tradition. As such, I hope today to impart that Thomas More's jurisprudence cannot be understood without giving due weight to the intellectual and historical backdrop at the time in which he lived, the social circumstances of his daily life, and the political situation that ultimately led to his death. More's final statement before his death, quote, I die the king's good servant and, the, and God's first, is a window through which one can view his philosophy of law. It also implicitly alludes to his lifelong attempt at mastering prudence in a legal system like all marred by human infallibility, or fallibility, sorry. Indeed, it was Moore who said, quote, don't give up the ship in a storm because you cannot direct the winds. What you cannot turn to good, you may at least, to the extent of your powers, make less bad. Thus, my task today is demonstrating Moore's commitment to serving in a system of imperfect human law without compromising his faith and how his legal philosophy relates to foundational American legal ideas. Moore's jurisprudence is partially the product of his life experiences. He was the son of a lawyer in his, and in his early studies, and his early studies pointed him in that direction, but his confidence in a legal vocation wavered at times and he actually contemplated leaving the profession to become a monk. History tells us, however, that the practice of law was too alluring to him he became a barrister in 1501. But he continued to study the humanities for the rest of his life with a specific interest in political philosophy. At the age of 23, he actually lectured on Augustine's City of God. Moore had four children with his first wife, and he provided all of them with a classical education, including his daughters, as well as his adopted daughters, during his second marriage. This affinity for what lies behind the law remained constant throughout his legal career. 
But once he was settled as a barrister, Moore joined Parliament and was unabashed in that chamber, speaking truth to power at times. He once argued so forcefully against a measure of King Henry VII that the king threatened to imprison his father. He gained a reputation as an honest lawyer with integrity, including a diligence and frankness with clients that was unparalleled. His first position as a judge came as an under-sheriff in the Star Chamber, where he was known for acting with kindness to the unfortunate and the poor. He was a master of requests, which allowed him to hear the causes of the lowest classes of society. As a chancellor, he served as an equity judge. But Moore entered most of these positions reluctantly, fearful of the corrupting effect of power and that the sheer volume of work would cause fidelity to a higher calling to deteriorate. He eventually became Lord Chancellor and as an advisor to King Henry VIII, beginning one of the most famous relationships in all of Western political history. As Lord Chancellor, Moore was required to issue decisions not based on constitutional or statutory interpretation. Rather, he often made them with regard to natural justice and common sense, and also had responsibilities like drafting documents for the king. The story of the end of Moore's life is fairly well known. He was put to death after a series of events reflective of the political turmoil in early 16th century England. First, he refused to sign a letter asking the Pope to annul the king's marriage. Then he refused to take an oath recognizing the king as the head of the Church of England. And then he refused to swear allegiance to the act of succession, which provided Parliament with the authority to legislate on matters of religion, declared the king the head of the church, and that law was generally considered subversive of the Catholic Church's ability to operate in England with respect to property and other things. He was charged with treason, although his silence did not beget the typical evidence to convict on such charges, but evidentiary shortcomings were overcome with what is usually perceived to be false testimony and political will masquerading as legal reasoning. Uh, throughout that period of time, Thomas More uh, maintained his, his wit that he's kind of come to be known for. And I learned actually today that when Thomas More was, right before he was about to be um, beheaded, he told the executioner, allegedly, that his beard was not guilty of anything and therefore to spare the, his beard the ax. And then he positioned his beard out of the way of the ax so it would not be struck when his neck was struck. Um, it's kind of remarkable to think about that when you're facing beheading. Um, Moore's life occurred during one of the most significant times in the history of political philosophy. Tudor leadership, the English Renaissance, the Reformation, New World Adventures, and the seeds of the English Revolution are the backdrop. Moore's England was heavily aristocratic with all the trappings of traditional feudalism and monarchy. The monarchical leadership was exceedingly decadent and profligate exhibiting power through theatrics and costly celebrations. It was not a time of humility. In terms of power struggles, Parliament sought to counterbalance the idea that the monarch was the state. This, in turn, led to King Henry VIII's paranoia regarding aristocratic rebellion. The beginnings of political turmoil born from aristocratic strife and clashes between classes gave rise to the humanism movement, the Renaissance humanism movement. Its main proponent, Erasmus, who was one of Moore's friends throughout their lives, is the most well-known thinker associated with this movement in England. Erasmus sought to return education to the classical notion of virtue, especially as it informed citizenship. Not unlike Moore, he was young, religious, academic, witty, and rhetorically gifted. 
and he used his gifts to poke fun at English high society while subtly exposing the plight of the lower classes. Erasmus's polemics arguably called for upheaval, whereas Moore's comments, while sharing a similar critique of society, always remained grounded in prudence. In terms of the intellectual context with respect to religion, Moore's lifetime saw the rise of Martin Luther and William Tyndale. Both Luther and Tyndale were fiercely anti-authority, specifically with respect to the church. Moore considered it his personal responsibility, his personal responsibility to defend the church as an institution from their attacks. He also detected an ethical revolution at play in the writings of, or a philosophical revolution at play in the writings of Luther. He did not share Luther's affinity for, or I guess high regard for the primacy of conscience, which he viewed as the offspring of Luther's kind of recycling of ancient skepticism about reason, virtue, and rational access to truth. Here again, Moore's focus on prudence shines through. Whereas Luther viewed the imperfections within the church as at times unforgivable, and therefore at times cause for a theological revolution, Moore tended to emphasize the legal legitimacy of the church as an authority. And he also seemed to think that the the core of the church was intrin intrinsically solid. But it was Moore's contrast with Luther regarding the power of reason that echoes his jurisprudence the most. Moore, when responding to Luther, consistently emphasized how Luther's teachings presumed the infallibility of individual and subjective interpretation, thereby undermining the basis of legitimate argument and debate and building the foundations of legal positivism, which I will discuss in a few minutes. Despite the political and religious turmoil surrounding him, what was Moore's philosophy of life? Well, somewhat unsurprisingly, it parallels the ethics that is expressed in Aquinas' writings. Teleology, baptized by revelation, is the guiding principle here. An ultimate end, happiness or salvation, was an act, and more specifically, an act of the intellect. Pursuit of that end required the cultivation of virtue. Moore writes about this when he criticized um, the city proper of London um, in demonstrating his desire to leave London. He says, quote, in the city, what is there to move one to live well? But rather, when a man is straining in his own power to climb the steep path of virtue, it turns him back by a thousand devices and sucks him back by its thousand enticements. Wherever you betake yourself, on one side, nothing but feigned love, on the other, fierce hatreds, quarrels, the din of the forum murmur against you. Where you turn your eyes, what else will you but? Gluttony in the world and the world's lord, comma, the devil. From an early age, Moore recognized his weaknesses, and he tried to counteract them. His spiritual poetry, which is often forgotten, considers followers of Christ to be joyful, trusting, and faithful, vigilant, courageous, humble, and strong in the face of pleasure-based temptation. <coughs> he called for abstention in order to focus the mind, quote, heavenward onto the contemplation of heavenly things. It would be silly not to think that Moore's emphasis on character development and the development of virtue did not inform his perspective on the nature of law. And that is precisely what Utopia, his most famous work, does. Utopia is an exercise in answering the central questions of political philosophy. What is the best way of life, and how does the political community go about achieving that goal? For Moore, the answer is the cultivation of individual and communal virtue, with both reinforcing the other. The citizens in Moore's utopia look a lot like the best in Greek and ancient Greek and Roman thought, with one caveat. They disregard the false idols of prestige and privilege, and instead emphasize social fellowship 
intellectual stimulation, and the active side of virtue. This looks a lot like Aquinas' reflections on Aristotle's politics and ethics. But as will be discussed soon, it also has ramifications for how Moore would view the Lockean social contract that is at least one, if not the major root, of the American founding and legal system. But with respect to the law in utopia, Moore is quite aware of human reality. Yes, human nature is fundamentally oriented towards the good, but Moore remains aware of original sin. Utopia also recognizes how bad circumstances tend to cultivate vice. As such, the law might need to respond to such circumstances. The following quote would probably come as a surprise to the 21st century scholar who studies criminal justice. Quote, if you allow young folk to be abominably brought up and their characters corrupted little by little from childhood, and if then you punish them as grown-ups for committing crime to which their early training has inclined them, what else is this, I ask, but first making them thieves and then punishing them for it? In short, Moore's utopia suggests that the law needs to be designed to institutionalize and promote virtue, both individually and communally. But is there room for such an approach in a pluralistic legal system like the United States, especially when it prioritizes freedom as its first principle? Before I go there, I'll need to discuss the philosophical basis of Moore's approach to law. Moore as a lawyer never explicitly expressed his philosophy and certainly not his epistemology. But his writings which express adherence to traditional natural law coupled with his fierce defense of Catholic dogma suggest he may have had very few if any bones to pick with medieval Christian philosophy as taught by someone like Aquinas. In order to grasp Moore's jurisprudence and its primary distinction from modern theories, one has to first comprehend his theory of knowledge. For Moore, metaphysics was as legitimate as any other science. Knowable essences allowed for proper deductions about the natural law. This is markedly different from modern approaches to the law that prioritize the empirical and the scientific side of human affairs. It's also one reason why the idea of the natural law probably received as many strange looks today as it does. Because as one commentator has mentioned, metaphysics only obtains general, or sorry, uh, natural law only obtains general acceptance in periods when metaphysics is dominant. It recedes or suffers an eclipse on the other hand when being and oughtness, morality and law are separated. When the essences of things and their ontological order are viewed as unknowable. An appreciation for metaphysics has radical implications for the content of the law. Metaphysics allows for legal recognition of the connection between what ought to be and what is because it allows for recognition that what ought to be by definition is part of what is. In short, once the intellect can perceive a thing's essence or purpose, it can determine what principles are necessary for actualizing that purpose either on an individual or communal level. Moore's most visible adherence to a respect for teleology came when he defended the authority of the church against Luther. Moore emphasized the positive role of reason in faithful living, whereas for Luther, grace was the primary, um, or sorry, grace was entirely a product of faith. Luther's attacks on church leadership due to their lack of faith contrast sharply with Moore's calls for reform through more principled reasoning. How do Moore's philosophical presuppositions compare to other jurisprudential perspectives? With respect to ancient thinkers, Moore does not share their skepticism about intelligibility. Something like a Cartesian universe, universe that prioritizes the capacity to think differs from Moore's approach. 
unequivocal rationalism, divorced from the concept of an objective factual order of reality, doesn't breed a body of natural law when the mind is totally in control. But Cartesian rationalism did much more when it comes to jurisprudence. First, it laid the groundwork for the individualism that's characteristic of the Enlightenment. A world filled with contemplatives is also a world that refuses to recognize the intrinsic sociability of humans and the spiritual side of community. Second, Descartes' reflections are the foundations of subjectivism. When reason is the primary definer of reality, maintaining objective norms of value is impossible. Following Descartes, and perhaps most relevant to the American side of this discussion, is the philosophy of John Locke. While most high school government classes point to Locke's political philosophy as the foundation of the American experiment, many forget that Locke was actually a skeptic, and he was a nominalist and an atomist. Skepticism permeates Locke's philosophy. He's not much different from the ancient skeptics in this regard. More significantly, Locke's philosophy answered the questions mentioned above with a prioritization of rights, pre-political and social rights. Law became less wedded to the good. Instead, it became a tool for protecting rights. As such, the philosophy of natural rights that is partially expressed by the Declaration of Independence enters the landscape. In a similar vein, Moore's philosophy may be contrasted with thinkers like Hume, Bentham, and Mill. The rigid empiricism that serves as the basis for their contributions, and that gives rise to type of utilitarian calculations that you might hear discussed in an ethics class here, and the primacy of sentiment in political decisions, again, fails to appreciate metaphysics in the way that Moore would. Hume's skepticism rejected the link between what is and what ought to be. Without that connection, Hume turns, senti turns to sentiment and approval for ethical and legal guidance. Bentham and Mill labeled this metric usefulness, or more colloquially understood the balance between pleasure and pain. But what started as a science project ultimately suffers from its own critique. Bentham and Mill's principles cannot account for the intrinsic subjectivity that will come into any of these types of calculations. If you or I is confronted with the same ethical dilemma, and we use that metric as our, our starting point, whose understanding of pleasure or pain is going to guide the decision? These philosophical underpinnings aside, what do they have to do with Moore's understanding of law? Well, his philosophy of law follows from his philosophical recognition of metaphysics. Moore's legal career communicates a, something similar to a Thomistic understanding of law, namely an ordinance promulgated by a legitimate authority for the common good. The hierarchy of law, eternal, divine, natural, and positive law, also shines through throughout his career. Human laws should follow the natural law, according to Moore, in order to pursue goodness. But what does that understanding of law have to offer by way of human behavior? First, the law must account for the practices of the community to be legitimate and effective. It also must come from a legitimate authority. But because humans are not perfectly virtuous, the law can't prohibit every vice. Rather, the law should prioritize measures aimed at ensuring safety while leaving room for non-legal cultivation of virtue counteract otherwise natural vice. This is an incredibly important principle. For more, the law can't be determinate. It can't reach every single human action. Rather, it contains gaps that must be filled by higher principles and conscience. This lack of determinacy is largely due to the limitations of language. As John Finnis writes, 
By the language of legislation and precedent forming judicial arguments, we make the countless determinations morally required to give effect to our moral responsibility, to love, respect, and promote the well-being of our neighbor as ourselves. But those acts of specification never altogether eliminate vagueness or the need for further determinations, which must seek an appropriate fit not only with the determination being interpreted, but also with the relevant remainder of our law and the continuing or perhaps new requirements and implications of relevant moral truths. In other words, language inherently limits our ability to legally account for the myriad human situations that might arise. Hence, the law may be prescriptive in some situations, but it also must remain humble. This differs significantly from what is known as legal positivism which given, it, given its empiricist foundations, views law as determinate and seeks to extend countless human actions, to countless human actions, regardless of their degree of separation from the original cause for legal action. But Moore's approach views the law as si simultaneously a sure and substantial shield necessary for human freedom and for pursuing a just society. This understanding of law finds expression in the lead up to his death. According to Aquinas, human laws can be unjust in two ways. They can disregard proper human ends and compel action contrary to the good, or they can be the product of Ill illegitimate authority. Disobedience from authority might be appropriate when, quote, rulers command things outside their sphere of authority. This certainly would seem to inform Moore's response to King Henry VIII's decision to separate from the church. As Wegemer notes, Moore understood that execution of the law required an understanding of, the human, of human nature. He expressed his belief that the natural law resided in the human heart. He also consistently appealed to reason rather than the passions when making decisions or advocating a particular social position. The most stirring example of this is his response to Cromwell's demand that he take the oath. He could not be convinced to take the oath regardless of the force of the king's will or the consequences. The prior law, as an instrument of reason, protected him. But the law only protected him as long as it, rather than passionate will, of the ruler reigned supreme. Thus, for more, human law could not be comprehensive, but could simultaneously balance a thirst for freedom and the pursuit of justice by remaining mindful of the higher bodies of law. One might say that he recognized that the law should reflect that humans are both free and fallen. Additionally, Moore always viewed the legitimacy of law against the backdrop of the legal authority. Again, at Moore's trial, we see his implicit recognition of a hierarchy of law. While on trial for treason, he questions the legitimacy of the authority that enacted the law that was the source of the charges against him, arguing, quote, this realm being but one member and small part of the church might not make a particular law that was disagreeable with the general law of the universal Catholic Church, any more than the city of London, being but one poor member in respect of the whole realm, might make a law against an act of parliament to bind the whole realm. For more, authority cannot produce laws that fall outside the scope of that authority. Second, no human authority could contravene divine authority. More could not support the notion that human law could contradict divine law. As such, human law has limits. These principles manifest themselves in his career in writing. As Lord Chancellor, he stated he would tell the king what he ought to do rather than what he can do. 
In Utopia, the law contains measures designed to enhance the common good. The meek are placed in, the battle, in battle to develop courage. Private property is abolished to counteract vicious human desires such as greed, avarice, and pride. And the city redistributes wealth in an exercise of charity. As an aside, I also learned today that um, the, um, uh, one of the main monuments at the height of Soviet Russia had Thomas More um, given his writings in Utopia as the, as the ninth highest individual on that monument. Pretty interesting, right? Um, as we know, the story does not end well for Sir Thomas. His life saw the rise of a competing jurisprudence whose forefather is William Ockham's philosophy of the will as the primary basis of the law. Ockham's epistemology prioritized will over reason, including in the divine mind, going so far as to say that reason merely bore the torch for the master that is the will. Being was primarily the product of will. But when will becomes the primary basis of law, then the law can't be objectively judged because the will is always subject to change. Rather, the validity of law only depends on the law's relation to the lawmaker. In short, if an authority promulgated it, the law is valid. Goodness relates to the sheer act of decision rather than deliberation reflecting on human nature. As one writer wrote about Occam, for Occam all depends on the divine will as ultimate cause the essences of things, the possible and the impossible. There are no unchangeable laws, nothing right or wrong in itself. Theft, adultery, and even hating God are not wrong in themselves, for God could command them, and then they become meritorious. Hobbes built his political philosophy on Leviathan from this epistemology, or at least something like it, and modern jurisprudence contains many of the same assumptions. In this framework, norms of right and wrong and justice are expressed through sovereign will. Thus, the product of the legislative will is, no good, is good no matter what. On a more particular level, norms like the principle of consent dominate discussions about the morality of acts. But how should the legislative will act? Bentham proposed utility as a metric. Later positivist thinkers, such as John Austin, suggested logic, math, and science. Commands by authority equal laws. Note how the defi this definition contrasts sharply with the Thomistic, Moore's, sorry, Moore's view of the law as an ordinance promulgated by an authority in service of the common good. There's a lack of content in the positivistic understanding of the law. The law seems somewhat like a vacuum, ready to be filled by sentiment or whatever other motivation comes along, science or not. And this is precisely the point where positivism divorces from Moore's jurisprudence. Jurisprudence is no longer a combination of philosophy and law. Rather, it's now a science, concerned primarily with what is, rather than what ought to be. And because empirical sciences or logic can fill the gaps within the law, the law now becomes determinate, unlike Moore's approach, which is underdeterminate. Problems that may have been addressed by non-legal solutions before are now countered with legal ones. The law leaves no stern stone unturned nowadays. I'm sure we've all felt that in our own lives. As a practitioner and judge, what was Moore's theory of justice? Well, justice and law are in a symbiotic relationship. Moore's conception of justice appears, again, to be something like a Thomistic sense of justice, in that the cultivation of the virtues in any particular situation, 
is close to the goal. This approach counters theories of justice that prioritize the maximization of welfare through the calculation of goods, whatever the metric is, as well as approaches that prioritize freedom, autonomy, and even something like equality. It may sound like a thing of the past, but for more, justice corresponds to, quote, what is due. The content of that phrase in any particular situation involves critical reflection on human nature and the purpose of life discussed above. Here, the rule of reason wedded to teleology determines the appropriate result. Moore famously told one of his sons-in-law, son, I assure you on my faith that, faith that if the parties will at my hands call for justice, then even if my father stood on the one side and the devil on the other, his cause being good, the devil should have right. For more, unjust laws exist when laws do not correspond to purposes of law articulated above. Writing to his daughter Meg while incarcerated, he complained about being imprisoned by a law that the Commonwealth was without authority to enact. And his reliance on conscience when refusing the oath within that law indicates appreciation for the connection between conscience, law, and justice. In other words, the properly formed conscience which directs action or inaction may be a vehicle for promoting individual and communal justice. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention how Moore's conception contrasts with some of the dominant theories that pervade public discussions today, especially in our country. Here in America, liberty and equality are often the rhetoric used in our debates. Sometimes they're opposed, but oftentimes they're wedded. Rights-based theories of justice, while sharing many of the same objectives and results of Moore's conception, differ in one significant way. Freedom as the organizing principle for questions of justice ultimately results in some antisocial calculations. The community too often is sacrificed to autonomy in some situations. On the contrary, Moore's approach conceives duties, and perhaps the rights that naturally go out of those duties, to be related to a particular conception of the good, which includes recognition of the service to the other. In this sense, one Moore might say rights-based theories of justice are less other-regarding which can, over time, undermine communities. Now, after discussing his jurisprudence, what was Moore's position on the role of the judge for implementing such values? The short answer is that Moore thought that judges should always remain cognizant of and actively draw from natural theories of justice. Impartiality was crucial to judging, and Moore, as an equity judge, believed that judges had a personal duty and conscience to see that the correct result occurred. His canons of statutory interpretation, in other words, his methods of how he would interpret statutes, are not evident in his writing, however. But we get a glimpse of that, glimpse of them, at the time of his death. When he defended himself, he disputed the construction of the statute given by his prosecutors. He emphasized how the word malice had a precise meaning, namely forcibly, in the English legal tradition. The testimony of Richard Rich regarding chance conversations he argued, couldn't rise to the level of malice, given this legal definition. Moore emphasized that the traditional principle of silence evincing consent undermined the prosecution's case, that he had actively disobeyed the law. He never actually said affirmatively that he, um, or he never actually wrote anything or said anything out loud um, that actually could be used as evidence that he was committing treason. <coughs> In other words, he was being basically uh, prosecuted for omissions. The principle underlying these arguments, namely fidelity to the law rather than the whim of authority, was dramatized in Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. 
When Moore's son-in-law asks him to arrest Rich for immorality because that man is bad, Moore responds, there's no law against that. Roper quickly replies, there is, there's God's law. And Moore tells Roper to let God arrest him, reminding him that he knows the law, not what's right. When Roper complains that Moore puts human law above God's, Moore quickly corrects him, saying, no, far below, but let me draw your attention to a fact. I'm not God. The same could not be said, if you asked Moore probably, for King Henry VIII's government. Although no written constitution existed at the time, Moore's final two arguments against his prosecutors indicate mindfulness of two issues that consistently confront judges. First, whether a law is legitimate against the larger legal backdrop. And second, whether judges had the authority to do what they proposed to do in the given situation. As to the first question, Moore argued that the act of succession and the act of treason that he was prosecuted under actually conflicted with other statutes on the books, as well as the broader English legal tradition and the Magna Carta, which asserted religious freedom rights. The fact that they garnered support of the majority, whoever that meant politically at the time, made no difference to Moore. Majority will could not trump established legal precedents through illegitimate means. Second, Moore questioned the legitimacy of the authority of judges to enforce those statutes given that they conflicted with divine law. This latter argument implicitly again acknowledges a hierarchy of law that judges must remain mindful of when weighing the legality of a particular statute. Tellingly, the Chief Justice in charge of the, or overseeing the prosecution did not answer Moore's challenge to the legitimacy of the statute and the Chief Justice's powers. What would Moore say to the judge who struggles to balance tension between the duties of public service and personal conscience, especially when the demands of the public conflict with the conscience of the actor? We get a glimpse in Utopia where Moore refers to a philosophy that takes its cue, quote, that takes its cue, adapts itself to the play in hand, and acts its part neatly and well. Don't arrogantly force strange ideas on people who you must know have set their minds on a different course from yours. You must strive to influence policy indirectly, handle the situations tactfully. This statement is a remarkable expression of the traditional virtue of prudence. It acknowledges the difficulty of pursuing the good when the circumstances appear bad. For judges, it seems to suggest caution in the wind. Yes, keep the correct principles in mind. Yes, seek to interpret the law for the good when possible, but doing so within the proper boundaries of one's authority. So with all of the above said, I turn to the question of whether there is any room for Moore's jurisprudence in the American legal tradition. His understanding of law does not fit perfectly, what, fit perfectly with basic American principles, specifically what is the chief organizing principle, namely liberty. Moore's not a Lockean. Many of the founders acknowledged the primary purpose of government and law as the securing of rights. Consent, rather than an objective order of things, seems to be the foundation of legitimate authority along these lines. But is Moore's fidelity to the natural law tradition fatal to a connection to the American tradition? Upon closer inspection, there are elements of traditional natural law theory within the founding, although they're not central. But perhaps this is one of the geniuses of the American experiment. It weds a theory that adequately accounts for the often tenuous relationship between liberty and authority with the practical, political, and historical realities at the time of the creation of the Republic. But strains of the natural law appear in how our founders and Lincoln during the Civil War 
understood the concept of the union as an organic social development that reflects the better angels of our nature. The natural rights tradition that receives some attention in the Declaration of Independence is, according to some thinkers like Jacques Maritain, the credible offspring of Thomistic thought rather than purely a product of Lockean ideas. The principle of consent as the great equalizer is not necessarily antithetical to the natural law, which leaves room for recognizing the effect of consent on the moral legitimacy of authority. Finally, many of the founders were quite fond of virtue to keep the, the republic that was created. Furthermore, Moore's understanding of human nature that acknowledges human equality and dignity at least ensures that his philosophy is not diametrically opposed to more central founding principles. The equality principle, forcefully articulated by Lincoln during the Civil War, is the chief reason why America's experiment with pluralism has worked so far. Pluralism welcomes all backgrounds, religious, cultural, ethnic, and others to the square. It encourages strong conflicts between values. It encourages deliberation, debate. But Moore's conception of law proposes resolution to such conflicts along the lines of careful, philosophical, deliberate reflection through reason. In short, his conception of law encourages a dialectic as the construction of law grows from deliberation and debate. Positive norms in this sort of framework may reflect human experiences on the ground while simultaneously remaining mindful of moral truths. And Moore's understanding of law, while not prioritizing liberty, recognizes the place of liberty in a legitimate legal system. Because law is underdeterminate, because it doesn't reach every sort of human action, it can't account for every situation. This implies a baseline of freedom in everyday human affairs. While the American regime seemingly prioritizes consent rather than goodness as the primary basis of legitimate authority, it does not make consent absolute in every legal context. There are unarticulated norms and articulated norms that limit consent in the criminal law, the tort law, and other fields of law. As for Moore's philosophy of judging, he left room for implementing values. In the American framework, judicial review dominates the formulation of meaning of legal rules. But every time that a judge decides a case, whether through statutory interpretation, appeals to precedent, or some other decisional rule, the judge impliedly recognizes certain legal norms. This intrinsic reality to the judicial function begs two questions. Should this be curtailed to any extent, if possible? And second, should judges only emphasize certain values within the system that they are operating? That latter question implicates Moore's judging, which largely occurred in courts of equity. In contrast, Supreme Court justices decide cases within a constitutional framework premised on certain values. The Constitution of the United States restricts the judicial function in theory because it places judges within a democratic system, albeit with a different role than legislators. But because that framework divides legal power three ways, judges are only one part of a three-sided project. The second question cannot be entirely separate from the first. Judges are bound in the scope of their role as well as the content articulated by their opinions because they are only one part of a larger constitutional framework that seeks to synthesize sovereignty. Thus, the values that emanate from the people bind judges and should inform their interpretive methods. These values are objectively ascertainable by a judge like Moore's reflection on natural principles of justice. But because the system is democratic, those values can be altered. 
Thus, their objectivity, objectivity simultaneously can operate as an instrument for judicial restraint and can underlie decisions made by judicial actors, thereby helping the law to remain legitimate within the community. It is here that Moore's contribution to the legal profession and legal history is most helpful. While many will disagree about the rectitude of Moore's life and death, few will disagree that the man himself understood the traditional virtue of prudence and sought to practice it in his life, professional and personally. Moore's approach to the law remains relevant because his attempt at practicing prudence, failed or not, is precisely the task of the judge within the field of law, ascertaining foundational norms and applying them appropriately and delicately within particular situations that may have long-term consequences beyond the particular case before the court. The fact that law is, by definition, underdeterminate renders Moore's contribution forever relevant. Judges will always be tasked with remaining aware of how experience informs values, deliberation and rational reflection lead to certain foundational principles, and how to impart those principles in certain situations. As such, Moore likely trusts human actors more than current society is willing to do when it comes to the law. But perhaps, like the scene in Robert Bolt's play suggests, that is why a legal system that appreciates Moore's prudence, unlike Henry VIII's, is a safer and more just one for all. In closing, Moore's philosophy of law contains a different starting point than modern theories of jurisprudence. His jurisprudence leaves room for freedom, however, although his notion of freedom is probably different from the foundational principles of a republic like ours. But this does not mean that Moore's legal career and philosophy of law are not worthy of study. As long as any understanding of the relationship between law and morality persists, <coughs> Moore's life will remain relevant. His career as a judge pointing to theories of natural justice while deciding cases informs modern judging as the timeless questions surrounding the appropriate role of a judge remain. Moore was certainly a man, quote, fundamentally at odds with his age given the changes in the historical and philosophical backdrop when it comes to the basis of law. The same could be said about transplanting more to the current legal climate, but the depth and breadth of his legal career, philosophically and practically borne out in his life and death, reflects and contains every relevant inquiry for the study of law itself. His life displays the perpetual dialogue between the inherent values of a natural law tradition and the primacy of positive law which prevails now, tempered by the virtue of prudence. And that is more than enough reason to study more for at least another century and in every age to come. Sure. My best. So, um, I'm not a historian, so I can't speak, uh, I guess you could say, definitively with respect to what current history says about it. Um, it seems to me that there's a little bit of a divide amongst historians about his particular preferences. Um, I believe it is the case that there were five or six well-known heretics who were, who were burned at the stake um, <coughs> 
while he held high positions in government. I don't think they were all burned at the stake while he was the Lord Chancellor. Um, what I find uh, instructive here is uh, actually John Paul II, when he uh, labeled uh, St. Thomas More the patron saint of statesmen, this was his quote. It can be said that he demonstrated in a singular way the value of a moral conscience. Even in his actions against heretics, he reflected the limits of the culture of his time. To me, that's kind of the way you have to view Thomas More with respect to um, the putting away of heretics under a regime of law that allowed that to occur. Um, he, he lived in a time where error, if you will, big capital E error, wasn't contemplated or tolerated like it is today, right? And actually, that intolerance was enshrined in law with respect to religious error. Um, one of the things I think you get from uh, Moore's, uh, that, that um, excerpt I read to you from um, A Man for All Seasons and just stud from studying Moore in general is that he is a man of the law. The law that's on the books is the law that governs. Um, and that's why he sought to use the law as a shield when he was facing persecution at the end of his life. And that might be also why the end of John Paul's quote, we have to be mindful of as well, if the law was a tool that was available at the time, unfortunately Thomas More might be a creature of his own time in that regard. Um, but I think, there, I, I, I think your question is the one that's on almost everyone's mind with respect to Thomas More. You know, we seem here in our tradition to laud him for his fidelity to his conscience at the end of his life, but there were certainly higher norms that he could maybe could have been more loyal to it when he was in positions of authority if such practices did occur. Um, but here also, again, is where the statements that I read from Utopia come in, right? Where he says, steer, don't abandon the ship when the storm is bad. You've got to steer things to make less bad, things less bad. Um, He's only one man, right? So uh, I think there's, uh, there are a lot of issues to explore there, but I think at the end of the day, um, he's a man wedded to the law on the books. And whether that brings out the better angels or the worse angels is up for debate. Yeah. But he did, I mean, he was no believer in religious freedom. And he did, I, I, think, I think there were probably four cases where he quite clearly presided over um, the execution of their case. And circle back to uh, a question I have for you, which is that, well, by way of comment, I think you're a little unfair to John Locke in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically to the lack of, of the letter on toleration, for example, where it seems to be the argument is about how state lacks coercive jurisdiction with regard to matters of conscience. And it seems to me that, that, that maybe in a way you can kind of rehabilitate more even with regard to that and you didn't kind of follow through the, the arguments uh, all the way because you know his dispute I think with uh, in the end was about who had jurisdiction over the King's Great Matter, right? Whether whether or not uh, who is the second of Catherine's marriage to her brother was in fact um, the final word or whether 
that he acknowledged that, that we live in a multiplicity of jurisdictions and the state's course of jurisdiction is limited and cabined by other, other concerns. But then when it came to the question of religious toleration, it just was a, he was incapable of anyone, you know, 1925. Right. Right. So I, what I was saying with respect to kind of underdeterminacy with respect to law, I think, I think you're right. Like I think he, that principle comes out more in his understanding of kind of the criminal law and other aspects of the law. But I think you're right with respect to religious freedom or toleration, if you will. Uh, for some reason, he doesn't practice necessarily what he preaches in the other legal disciplines. But also, building on that issue of law, you know, um, in some ways, um, what, when you think about what Locke was trying to do in the first treatise of government, to critique the monarchy, um, and then to try to turn that system of rights as you said, he referred to the pre-political rights, mm -hmm. as he writes about um, in the second treatise of government, and the property and things like that, which would uh, ref reflect more a natural right perspective, more important than monarchical right within the context of his political rights. Yeah, so I think uh, Locke's conclusions with respect to kind of the organization of political society certainly differ from someone like, uh, uh, name is blanking me now that I mentioned in my talk, um, Hobbes or uh, certainly someone like Moore. Um, but I think when you get into the actual epistemology of someone like Locke, versus someone like Aquinas, is where you see that um, the type of gap filling that occurs in more modern legal positivistic regimes, uh, there's, more for that, there's more of that available in a Lockean framework than there is, the seeds are there, if you will, than there is in someone like Moore's understanding of law. And I think that that probably plays itself out maybe for the good when it comes to toleration, right? Um, because there's positive value, for example, not everyone coming to the truth at the same time. Um, people being on different journeys in the law kind of respecting that. Um, Lock. Yeah. I think he was. Yeah. yeah, I think he was. Yeah. But it was reason 
Yeah, um, but I would say it was maybe reason uh, less mindful of revelation. And then, and then that, yeah, and then, um, and then I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of as far as I would go at this point. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a question that, that their starting points are different, and I think Locke as kind of the intellectual forefather of the American uh, founding is kind of um, taken for granted and probably should be. Um, I'm not sure that, and I'd like to go back and read Locke again, I'm not sure that Locke discounts Revelation so much as he discounts divine right of authority to determine law. Now, I've yeah. read that. I mean, I would have to shore up a little bit more on Locke, too, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hard to kind of fit it all in here, too.
In some of his writings, actually, directly in response to Luther, he tries to make the argument that um, it's almost like Burkean, actually, that that uh, institutions and kind of like the internal procedures within institutions and kind of like internal coherence within the law, like a bulwark against majority will kind of like sweeping things along. Um, in that sense, it's kind of like an argument from it's like an argument from tradition against tyranny, um, which I don't think you hear much anymore, right? Uh, we kind of, some, sometimes people make legal arguments that need to just kind of like shred everything, right? Um, otherwise, we're kind of being subjected to the tyranny of the past, if you will. So he tries to make that, whether he, whether he pulled it off or not, another question, but um, he tries to make that argument against Luther directly in some of his writings. Big question. Um, kind of on the, I guess on the, on the front lines of just being a public defender, um, you're simultaneously kind of, uh, you're always balancing zealous representation of your client and sometimes almost feeling like you're uh, fostering bad behavior through that zealous reputation, representation um, with uh, your own fidelity to a system that should be uh, seeking truth, right? The appropriate outcome based not only on what occurred, um, but based on the justice in the particular situation. Um, I think that's a conversation that we would have like with a couple bottles of wine, maybe over like <laughs> four hours of dinner. But like I said, you're always kind of navigating these questions, like figuring out what's best for your client, while not uh, while kind of like manipulating the system a little bit to kind of get your client in, into a place that could be helpful to your client, without necessary without obviously violating the law or violating your own conscience. Um, so in that regard, that's why the virtue of prudence is the most interesting to me. But it's one of those. Uh, it's certainly I think the the most elusive virtue in terms of um, feeling like you 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 have it down and certainly as a public defender, um, where there's just so many competing pressures, not only on you as the attorney, but on the other party people within the system, the other parties within the system who have their own objectives, um, and especially on the front lines with uh, kind of low-level cases where you just have real circumstances in front of you and you're not dealing at a higher plane of law. So. Um, in that regard, I guess you could say that uh, I find studying Thomas More uh, useful because it simultaneously allowed me to allows me to kind of keep abreast of this philosophical history, right, and this philosophical tradition, um, but also kind of trying to kind of trying to use the example of not only him but other people around that time um, uh, and people who have kind of looked at him in their own work while trying to uh, kind of navigate those waters themselves. So. 
it's tricky. As a, as a legal aid attorney, which is a little bit different than being a public defender, um, because as a public defender, you're really dealing with what you're, you're often dealing with one client, right? So it's kind of like a doctor-patient relationship. You don't have the same type of systemic focus as a public defender, unless you're, like, you know, the chief public defender of a particular big metropolitan area. Um, as a legal aid attorney, though, you are kind of tasked with sometimes more systemic questions, right? And that's where Moore's comments with respect to kind of making things less bad when we're not going for too much, right? Um, achieving things kind of minimally is something that I've tried to remain mindful of when engaging in that sort of work. So, yeah. Thank you. Depends on who's natural law, um, and whether it's whether it's yeah. I mean, whether it's kind of like receptive to the. <laughs> the <laughs> so, do you want to your answer is no? no? My answer is we have to talk about an hour and a half about convincing natural law. Yeah. Well, for instance, I'm thinking about Thomas's uh, qualification about property. If you have more property than you need if you're the of the poor, things like that. The French stress on equality and fraternity would seem to be more willing to give things to the poor than our system. Yeah, I think that's a, an incredibly complicated question. Um, I might, it might depend on like, if you're talking about like a governmental regime versus like the private actors within a society, right? So there might be some who would argue that the American regime lends itself to more private-oriented, charity-based approaches as a freedom for religion to operate, right? Or freedom for adherence to natural law to operate. Um, so it'd be more difficult to enshrine a principle, like that property principle, in law here. Um, and maybe it would be more easier in the other regime. But then the corollary to that is maybe it's more difficult for dissenters from that, whatever that regime is, with respect to natural law, to kind of differentiate themselves. So that's kind of like my initial, I guess my initial reflection on that, but I think it's a probably a, a lot deeper of a question. <laughs> 